and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contreras Corner for Almost Heroes, part three of the French Travaganza. Hello, and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend Julio, the curator of the French Travaganza, the creator, the auteur. And uh, yeah, part three moves us along today to Matthew Perry and the I don't know if questionable. What's the word I'm looking for here? Confusing, confounding, troublesome, baffling, unique uh, film career that he had. The feature film persona of Matthew Perry, which may or may not be the same as his TV persona. Could it be any more similar <laughs> to his character from Friends? Yes, Julio, as you just mentioned, Almost Heroes is a movie we're here to discuss today. Uh, an interesting film uh, for a couple of reasons, obviously. It, the sad reason, number one, of Chris Farley's passing. This movie had been uh, done for about a year before it was released, um, but didn't. it had to do with a, a merger between Turner and whoever they merged with. Whoever made the film, there was something going on, and it was just kind of one of those, you know, it was collecting dust on the shelf type things, and then... Uh, Chris Farley passed while this all happened. He was gone for about six months before this was released. And the month after this dirty work came out, which marked, you know, his final film. It's a sad state of affairs, too, because, like I just said, this film was done for uh, a year. And if I understood correctly, and uh, something we'll get into in the second half of this about, I think this was one of his periods of sobriety of him trying to get straight. But uh, unfortunately, that didn't last as Died of an overdose um, in the early part of 1998. So that is kind of one of the things that this movie's known for, being one of Farley's posthumous releases. And then also Chandler, uh, Matthew Perry, uh, it is known for being one of the original movies that put him front and center to try to make him a, a leading man in Hollywood, so to speak. Now, I was mistaken. I thought this was the first attempt at this, but Fool's Rush In uh, came out the year before this, so... I think he might have been better off if they flip-flopped those. If Almost Heroes came out first and then Fools Rush in, it's like, ah, all right, totally redeemed himself <laughs> here. But this movie is known, it has those kind of two asterisks next to it, and it seems like that's its legacy and not necessarily anything uh, about the movie, besides the fact that it was a colossal bomb and uh, has a very meager 5% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's the stuff that we live for. That's right. Uh, it it baffles me, Alex, that you repeatedly buried the lead when it came to this movie, because 
you I've never seen it. You've seen it, I imagine, like 20 times by now. That's going into what? this episode. <laughs> okay. We uh, we know that this is a movie you love and there's a movie that you expect me to hate. And uh you told me about Chris Farley and I knew about Matthew Perry. Never in any of the conversations we've had came up the fact that this is directed by Christopher fucking Guest. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> My apologies, sir. It's not even you, like pop culture in general. I mean, I was aware of this movie as, yes, like the last Chris Farley movie. And yes, that period piece with Chandler in it. Uh, never as a Christopher Guest movie. How I guess that everything else that was happening just overshadowed the fact that the man that uh, created this spinal tap was also the man behind Almost Heroes. It's, it really caught me by surprise. This is, I mean, if you had sold me Almost Heroes as a Christopher Guest movie, I would have been a lot less reluctant to watch it. Really? Yeah, it's Christopher Guest. <laughs> he directed A Mighty Wind. Oh, I'm aware. I just, I thought, like, you wouldn't be sold uh, on uh, the idea of this. So if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you so much for joining us. If you're a returning listener, you know we got love for you all. Give us just a moment here while we explain what it is we do. To you know, all potential new listeners, as the friend Stravaganza rages on, who knows? Maybe Matthew Perry has a fan base with their Google alerts just alive and uh, have been driven here because of that. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. And what we'll do with that then is make a case for maybe why that isn't the whole story of the film we're discussing. Uh, maybe some of the acting is a bit over the top, some questionable direction, overrated storytelling, perhaps an overrated script, uh, or just something that the critics you know, just were tripping over themselves to uh, show that it was the It movie. Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches uh, known as Rotten, uh, being that this is 5%, we're definitely in that category there. We typically shoot for 30% and below, but this is doing its work for us. Uh, and as you could guess, what we do is make a case for the positive merit in that film. Maybe some underrated acting, uh, some bold storytelling choices or directing choices, all in an attempt to say that the shit's objective. You can be as over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical as you want to be about something if you really set your mind to it. Uh, but also, and most importantly, to point out that the Rotten Tomato system is rather flawed in that the tomato meter score doesn't always tell the whole story. Now, that comprises the first half of our podcast, part one, known as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing, uh, in this case, Almost Heroes, and I look forward to part two, the second half, where we <laughs> talk about how we really feel. That's correct. Part two, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we forget about the gimmick. We don't care about the tomato meter rating. We just express our true feelings about the movie. And longtime listeners... Even if you've just listened from the beginning of the French Travaganza, Alex has been touting this movie as A, a movie that's underappreciated, and B, a movie that he's pretty sure I'm going to hate. Is he right? <laughs> it's been a while since I had seen this, so I think another question to keep in mind is, will my views hold up? Oh, no. That'll be that'll be truly tragic. Because whether Real Talk ends up revealing that I hate it or love the movie, it's not really, you know, if I hate it, it's like, well, of course. And if I, it turns out that I loved it, you'd be like, hey, that's, that's happy times. Mm. Uh, but if you end up disliking it, that is tragic. I don't want happiness to go away from you. 
I don't want you to stop liking things that make you happy. So the the potential for uh, for heartbreak is there in real talk, and I look forward to experiencing it uh, <laughs> along with all our listeners. Uh, but first, Alex, we're gonna go into Contreras Corner, and uh, unless you have any objections, I think that it's it's time to give uh, our friend Billy from We Watch a Thing the the spotlight for a minute, so he can so he can tell us about Chandler. Absolutely. <laughs> Hello out there all you contrarians lovers, it's your boy B Dizzle from We Watched A Thing back to school you on more friends and this week we're finally covering him. It's Chandler Bing as played by Matthew Perry. Chandler Bing was Ross's college roommate and they were in a band together, a flock of seagulls style band as we learn through hilarious 80s flashbacks. Chandler is a cynic at heart. He doesn't believe in Thanksgiving. He doesn't believe in love. His parents divorced when he was very, very young, and his father became the star of a gay burlesque show in Las Vegas called Viva Las Vegas. Chandler is the funniest member of the group, not through his antics, but his words. He's the joke teller. He's the smart one. He works in an office job that nobody else knows what it is. He spends a lot of time talking about filling in the weenus at work. Famously, when asked what his job is by the rest of the friends in a trivia game, Rachel guesses he's a transponster and loses their apartment because they don't know the answer. Throughout the course of the show, I think Chandler actually grows the most. He also cares the most about all of his friends. As Joey's roommate, he supports him more than Joey's own parents in his quest as a struggling actor. He often pays his rent, he pays for his headshots, and it's not just in a financial way. Chandler genuinely cares about all of the rest of the friends. Particularly in the later seasons, his wife, Monica. That's right, him and Monica hook up in London at Ross's wedding. A wedding where Ross says the wrong name, ending in yet another divorce. When Chandler, the commitment-to-phobe who hates love, finally proposes to Monica, it's such a heartfelt moment that you can't help but cry. So with all that said, Chandler is my second ranked friend. Thank you for not skipping through these past 90-odd seconds, but now we're back to the good stuff with our friends Julio and Alex. Thanks, lads. Man, it's it. I'm glad that we didn't start with Chandler because clearly Joey's backstory is so much more simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with Chandler, I mean, I guess he is the the most one of the most connected friends, as Billy said earlier uh, in a previous episode. Um, all right, Alex, how much of that did you know? I, again, I feel like I know the general outline of the friend's story, but for some reason, probably because when I was a, a kid, and you know an early teen when I did see episodes because of your mindset at the time, Chandler would definitely be the one I uh, got the most from or enjoyed the most. Cause he's such an asshole and he's just sarcastic and really fucking cynical about everything. <laughs> uh, yes. So this movie already had an in with me because yes, the contrarian's history has established that I am not a fan of Chris Farley's brand of comedy, but I am a huge fan of, uh, Chandler's brand of comedy, maybe even Matthew Perry's. I guess I, you know, I would have to revisit all the movies of his that I've seen to to reacquaint myself with how that translation goes. Because I don't think that you can just tell it from Almost Heroes, uh, but Almost Heroes has a leg up when it comes to me, just because it stars Matthew Perry, who 
he's my number one friend. Like in, in, in the show, he's my favorite character. So it's not all bad going into this, <laughs> Alex. Actually, the scales were fairly balanced. It was like my my antipathy for Chris Farley's antics was balanced by my love for Matthew Perry's uh, line delivery. So it's all equal right now. It's like it, it was up to the movie to to tilt the scales one way or the other. How about you? Uh, you know, I I was trying to remember what it was. This was a movie that was like it was a Friday night rental or something when I was a kid because I remember the first time I watched it. It was at home and I was a young lad, and I think it was I was allowed to go to the video store and pick something out. And Chris Farley was funny to me because I liked Tommy Boy and Black Sheep, and I didn't really get into Airheads until I was a teenager. So. I don't know, man. Matthew Perry, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen another feature-length film that has him in it. I only know him from Friends. Uh, The whole Nine Yards, that's a movie that I once saw with him in it. And then what was the movie where he, like, shacks up with um, Elizabeth Hurley? With Elizabeth Hurley? Yeah. Serving Sarah is what it's called. Oh, haven't seen it. Man, I think that's like a nine percenter. Run tomatoes. All I remember about that was the like every bit of advertising material involved Elizabeth Hurley like taking her pants off or something. Like it was there's some like comedic beat in the movie where her pants get taken off like by accident, and that was like in everything. Uh, so there you go. Oh, can't blame them. And seventeen again. I I've seen that movie before. He's young Zac Efron. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> He's old Zach Efron. I'm sorry. He's old Zach Efron. <laughs> Zach Efron is young Matthew Perry. You know what it meant. So I, I lied to myself. I have seen other feature length films that he's been in, but I don't really care about Matthew Perry. Uh, yeah, it was Chris Farley. And like my. So I have like this nostalgic memory of renting this movie from Video Connection or wherever it would have been as a kid and watching it and probably, I don't know, getting pizza and candy and all that stuff. Uh, and it's funny then because it's got Chris Farley doing a bunch of his Chris Farley shit. And, uh, you know, it's probably been, you know, five to ten years since I saw it last. But I remember, like, I think I watched it in college with some friends and I've caught it on TV, you know, random times. And the older I've gotten, there's more shit in it that, like, with my sense of humor basically being as evolved is giving myself way too much credit. <laughs> but being where it is, some of the shit I find funny in this now is not the same stuff I found funny when I was younger. And I think it is kind of a, in some ways, a precursor to like the Wet Hot American Summer type writing and uh, presentation. Of course, this is like a historical fiction, so that, that's the the backdrop for it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Coming into it, it was nostalgia mixed with, you know, uh, what is this going to be like now? I had completely forgot Kevin Dunn's the bad guy. And no, I'm not talking about Kevin Dunn, the director of wb's television he's the bad guy in real life kevin, <laughs> kevin dunn being the hidalgo here spanish kevin dunn yeah, with his, kevin oduno his uh upturned mustache well alex the how we feel after this watch of almost heroes our true feelings shall be revealed later on but before we go into contreras corner uh, i have a few rotten quotes which when you know it uh are almost everything that's on the Rotten Tomatoes page for Almost Heroes. I'll start with that. Frank Ochiang from theworldjournal.com, who says, A forgettable farce with no flavor. 
utterly flaccid and foolish. It wastes the comedic capabilities of Farley and Perry, who deserve much better. Is this movie flaccid, Alex? Yeah, that's an interesting term to use. Also, does it waste the comedic capabilities of its two stars? Because I think that if nothing else, it just it exploits them as much as possible. Yes. It's like Farley at his most Farley and Perry as his most Perry. I think what they're trying to say is like they could be better as like an on-screen duo. Uh, whereas, yeah, Christopher Guest and Warner Brothers were just like, all right, we want you to be 100% you and then you to be 100% you. <laughs> If you want to interact at any point, that's cool. <laughs> uh, more on that later. Uh, next, Joe Layden from Variety says, The pacing is too slack for the picture to ever achieve a satisfying comic momentum, and the limp ending is a real letdown. Alex, what is it with these weird adjectives? Dude, no shit. Was this the year of cock? Like, what's going on? <laughs> I thought the ending was one of the best parts of the movie. I mean, we'll get there during the, the recap, but I, I thought it was great. Definitely not limp. I don't know if it was fully erect, but it was at least respectable. It was it was making a respectable showing. Um, let's close with Paul Tatara from CNN.com, who says, All of the guys on the expedition are dumb, and they say and do dumb things in dumb ways dumbly. That's um, the joke. I was going to say, that's a comedy. Paul. Like I understand there are comedies about smart people, but there's just as many, if not more, about dumb people. That's just because dumb people can be really funny. It's all in the execution. There's a really good one called Smart People. You should watch that. <laughs> hey. <laughs> that is that is our, our monthly plug for smart people. <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, I feel almost embarrassed as a wrestling fan that I wasn't able to figure this out for myself but the reason this movie was shelved and delayed for a year is they were waiting for the merger between uh, turner broadcasting and time warner so there you go oh i'm sorry the reason i'm embarrassed as a wrestling fan is because that's uh turner broadcasting owned wcw world championship wrestling which was like a at its absolute at this point in time in 97 it was uh beating vince mcmahon in the ratings every week and like depending on which version of history you pay attention to, close to putting Vince out of business. Uh, And so because I'm a wrestling fan and obsessed about shit, I have a pretty good understanding of the business workings of what happened with Turner throughout the 90s leading into the uh, Time Warner AOL merger. Because that's when, like, WCW, they were already, like, they they peaked on the phone here in 97, and then, like, the rest was just cascading downwards. Yeah, but as soon as that Time Warner AOL merger happened, they were done because people were like, yeah, we don't want this wrestling bullshit on here anymore. <laughs> All right, so that explains why this was shelved is they were just waiting for it. Um, I, I said to Julio before we pressed record, I didn't realize how close to its release date. I guess this would be the 24th anniversary of its release. came out on my birthday, May 29th of 1998. A budget of $30 million... Now, uh, I could see certain people arguing to me, this is what happens when you use practical sets and costuming and all that shit when you could just do it on a computer for much, much less money. As this movie does rely heavily on practical effects, practical settings, there is some pretty hilariously bad green screen. I kind of think that's part of the joke, though. That is part of the joke. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, But $30 million budget for a dreary uh six million dollar return now give me six million dollars and i'll be happy but for that kind of investment that obviously classifies as a uh, a flop a bomb have you anything to say 
Yes, I do. When I am dead and have passed on to the next world, I want you to lower me from these gallows and kiss my hairy buttocks. All right. Well, Almost Heroes, because of some of the things we just mentioned, has a bit of an awkward opening. Now we get some cool like paintings and, you know, the old timey paintings of Matthew Perry and Chris Farley and Harry Shearer's doing the voiceover. Uh, Harry Shearer wrote This is Spinal Tap alongside uh, Christopher Guest. So I imagine this is the only part in the movie where he does a voiceover. So I assume this is just kind of like, hey, you're my buddy. Do this for me. Uh, Chris Farley is being sent to the gallows for public indecency, drunk, you know, public drunkenness. Kiss my hairy buttocks! I think that what's cool is that the, the movie finds a way to humanize him by pairing him with somebody that is the complete opposite of who he is on screen. It also reminded me of The Mummy, and this is like the second time that I've referenced The Mummy in the French I was going to say, you got Mummy on the brain. But didn't it? Because, you know, The uh, the Mummy starts with uh, Brendan Fraser about to be executed before Rachel Weisz save him. Much like Matthew Perry saves uh, Chris Farley here. That's right. Rachel Weisz and Matthew Perry on a scale of equal hotness, I would say. Yeah, Matthew Perry's hair. That is, uh, he never has that look in Friends. Like no. everything else that he does here is very Friends-like, but the the look and just the delicious hair, that, that is his hair, right, Alex? You're the expert here when it comes to, to telling if somebody's wearing a wig or not. It certainly looks like it. It was the off-season of Friends, so he could have just grown it out. <laughs> I just imagine him showing back up on, uh, you know, Friends, because obviously it hadn't, like, taken off then, and he thought this was going to be the thing that catapults him to the moon. Uh, he just <laughs> shows up. Yeah, I was on set with uh, Levy the other day. You know, he's a good guy. <laughs> but Matthew Perry plays Leslie Edwards, a, a foppish aristocrat, uh, as is described here. And he's looking for, like, Farley plays Bartholomew Hunt, and Hunt... Is like an odd job man, but he's also really good with direction or some shit is like the, the character trait that he has. And what Leslie wants to do, Matthew Perry, is uh, they want to compete. He wants to compete against Lewis and Clark to be the first to make it to the Pacific Ocean. And so he somehow f- hears that Farley is the best uh, and can help him out on his voyage. And he goes to this town that he's in to recruit him and he gets a stay of execution. So he gets him off the hook and uh, they're an immediate odd couple. They put together a, a crew there locally, like I mentioned already. Eugene Levy consists of one of them. Uh, I mean, it's like really this- all he needs is a uh, Eugene Levy, who uh, it's funny because last episode we were talking about uh, Michael Sheen and how he may be a good actor, but he's not a chameleon. And I think Eugene Levy is a chameleon. Shockingly, because this was you know we were very close to him becoming Jim's dad, which yep. that was Eugene Levy for you know a decade. Yep. And so you're right in this. You watch this, and he, like when he's got the when he works for Hidalgo later on in the movie, he's got the helmet on and everything. Until he like starts speaking, you don't really recognize who it is. This was his life before American Pie, and it was good. He was as an actor, he was fulfilled. He was not typecast. Uh, I think that Shit's Creek might have finally maybe given him an out, but you're right. This is pre Jim's dad, and uh, it was good times. I was going to and- say thank God for Shit's Creek because. I would have felt Eugene Levy, as is exemplified here, is a lot more than Jim's dad. So I'm glad something <laughs> got him out of that rut. Yeah, he finally stopped answering Jason Biggs' calls. <laughs> he was the last holdout. <laughs> <laughs> no, I bet you fucking 
Chris Klein still answers his calls. <laughs> hey, buddy. You want to come watch Street Fighter 2? Remember Election? I was good in that. <laughs> so they assemble their crew, and they're off. The joke, like, he's supposed to be the captain, and uh, I don't know if it's a joke, but his strategy, excuse me, to the, to him it's not a joke, to me it is, is they're going to go against the current to, you know, get to the Pacific, and the crew's like, wouldn't it be much easier to go with the current? And he's like, yes, but that's, you know, we're not going to do that. And so what it does is it results in several very funny visual gags throughout the movie where we check in with their progress and you see this giant ship like fighting mightily to go against the current as we embark we go into just the unadulterated full-fledged chris farley show as we get about you know a five minute sequence of him recounting tales of animals attacking his you know um <laughs> comrades and people he's been on trips before with and it's you know what i mean by farley right he's doing like the head like erratic head movement and the whole body language and making weird noises and shit. It, now Which this is really loud. He's yes, like this five was, times louder than anybody else in the movie. Well, this is what we've found ourselves having trouble with before Julio with you and Farley. So what was the difference here as, uh, as he played the role of, uh, Bartholomew hunt as opposed to Tommy Callahan or, um, fuck something Donnelly. I, I can't remember his name. And <laughs> Bartholomew Donnelly. <laughs> Well, you know, he's Donnelly because Al Donnelly is his brother in Black Sheep. But yeah, I don't remember his name in that. So what what makes this different? Well, there's two things, Alex. One is uh, the obvious one, which is Matthew Perry. I, I just put Matthew Perry next to Chris Farley. And there's just this this tuning that happens. It's like like you're equalizing your stereo. And, you know, somehow like the peaks of like Chris Farley's Like tracking on an old voice. VHS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just like, you know. The closer they get together, the more they interact, and uh, then Perry kind of grows a little more livelier, and Chris Farley kind of like tones itself down. Like they find moments where they kind of mimic each other without ever fully becoming the other person. So I, that's one thing. You know, it, it's just put Matthew Perry next to Chris Farley, and I, I am more likely to accept whatever Chris Farley is doing because, in a way, I am Matthew Perry. So you know, I have a way in. The other thing is that for all the silliness in in Chris Farley's performance and in other people's performances in the movie, I think it's a genius move that they introduce the the real history aspect to the story, right? Like it's like, oh, Lewis and Clark, they're competing against Lewis and Clark because we know that Lewis and Clark actually succeed. So there is this sort of like bittersweetness watching this movie uh, and we'll get to the ending, but... You know, when you're watching it, you're like, oh, man, this guy, he's not going to win. We know that the the history books are written about Lewis and Clark, not about Matthew Perry and Chris Farley. So to see them be very gung-ho about their objectives, while we as the audience, we know that they're not going to succeed no matter what they do. I think that that's also something that works to balance out all the craziness that Chris Farley brings to to the comedy. Fair enough. Uh, how much did you know about uh, Lewis and Clark going in? I mean, they're like, I imagine there's a huge differential between what you and I have learned about Lewis and Clark, being that I went to public school in America and you went to public school in Peru uh, in the sense of, you know, they're like <laughs> American heroes type thing. Like I, I don't know. I'm going to guess is that 
the Peruvian school system has other things they want to teach kids. So <laughs> my, if I had to guess, you you may have learned about some of the presidents, like Abe Lincoln and shit, and George Washington, obviously, and stuff like that. But I'm going to take a guess that you did not lo- learn about Lewis and Clark in school. Not until I saw the trailer for Almost Heroes. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> but But watching this movie, it inspired me to look them up. And I, I mean, I already knew, you know, you can't live in America for this long without at least getting an idea of like, oh, Lewis and Clark are historical figures and they're explorers and whatever. But then as the movie was going, you know, a couple of times I paused and I went to Wikipedia and I'm like, okay, so what really happened to Lewis and Clark? What, where is this movie heading? Because part of the game is figuring out that it's a comedy. So it's, it has to have a happy ending. And since I was 100% sure that... Matthew Perry was not going to achieve his goal. Like, you know, he was going to be beaten by Lewis and Clark. So I'm like, okay, so what what else is going to happen? What is he a different historical figure that's going to be revealed by the end of the movie? Or is he going to discover something else? So I was kind of like doing my own research in the real world. Uh, and that is a good thing. I think that any movie that inspires you to to learn about real stuff is is a win. So whatever historical inaccuracies this movie may have, it's also very likely that it would encourage people to learn about the real stuff. How many kids have been inspired to pick up a book? Worldwide. Pick up their tablets and just Google Lewis and Clark. Yeah, that's it's a historical fiction. It rewrites history. It's like uh, Watchmen or, I don't know, something else we've done recently. I can't remember now. The Damn United. There you go. <laughs> yes, taking many uh, liberties with the, the subject material. You came to Derby County, uh-huh. third round of the FA Cup, and you refused to shake my hand. Uh, we get some team building. Uh, the crew is kind of getting to know each other. They're all very intimidated by Edwards, Matthew Perry. Just this is a, this is a road trip movie. We're meeting all yeah, these different is. characters, and you know the only thing that's really uh, lacking is the soundtrack. But it wouldn't really fit to you know put hold on loosely or. <laughs> Carry on my so, wayward son. Yeah, two princes or something like that in, in this movie. <laughs> but it, it, it is a road trip movie, and we're moving along here and just meeting new people, and everyone's kind of getting to know each other a little bit better. Uh, don't tell me, Alex. Uh, this is going to be something that's going to re- be revealed in real talk. But as I was taking my notes, as I was watching the movie, there are a few instances where I just wrote, is this Alex's favorite joke? Because you, you teased the last episode, I think, that that this movie had one of your favorite jokes ever. And so... Correct. There were instances, you know, there, there were times in the movie where, like, I stopped. And I'm like, oh, this might be it. So it's not just you making assumptions that I would hate this movie. It's also me making assumptions that I know what tickles you. And uh, you mentioned that the, the crew gets to know each other better. And uh, this is one of those moments when uh, they're telling uh, stories <laughs> around the campfire. And the, the dude tells the story of uh, how he tricked his brother into eating sheep shit. And uh, and then the big twist is that at the end, he's like, oh, and I don't have a brother. It was me. <laughs> I have no brother. I ate sheep shit. Yep. That, it's so. I, I wrote down, is this Alex's favorite joke? I wrote sheep shit <laughs> equals Alex's favorite joke? <laughs> Question mark. It's so good because. You know, everyone's like, oh, you got to tell the story because Matthew Perry is trying to, like, you know, 
make him. He's trying to be a common man. And they're like, tell this story. It's hilarious. And he starts. He tells it, and Matthew Perry's terrified, and like they're all laughing. And then Farley's like, "No, no, no! Tell him the end. That's the best part." And he's like, "Oh, well, I have no brother." <laughs> it's it's tremendous, uh, but but no, an early, I, I appreciate that being a front runner, but that's not it. Okay, well, don't tell me. Don't tell oh, me. Okay, you gotta okay. tell me. Yeah, at the end, in real talk, it's gonna be really sad if none of my candidates is is the correct one. Uh, also. I I did all this research on Lewis and Clark. I did not do research on this. Uh, is that Blue from Old School as part of the crew? No, I, that's just one of the other old, old guys. Old guys. No, you're right. It is Blue. I was going to say, I've seen that guy in something else, but I guess the beard threw me off. Good call. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Blue. I'm pretty sure the only guy that was in Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band that is also <laughs> in Almost Heroes. He was also uh, Pappy in one of Eddie Strait's favorites, Bubble Boy, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Lived to be 86 years old, so there you go. Good on him. How often do you think that people recognize him as Blue versus recognize him as the old guy from Almost Heroes? Well, while he was alive, I'm sure a lot. Because <laughs> that God, going to college shortly after that movie came out, it was old school Anchorman and Talladega Nights that like were the just... That and Chappelle show were just overquoted to death, like beyond beating a dead horse. Like the horse is just, you know, a skeleton at this point and you're still kicking it. So you so you are guilty of having said at some point at a party or wherever, you're my boy blue. Of course. <laughs> I wouldn't have been a white male uh, ages 18 <laughs> to 34 at the time if I didn't. <laughs> I don't think he gets any... Any memorable quotes in this one, but I did appreciate that he had a very specific goal, and he's like, "I just want to see the ocean." Yeah, like, hey, that's tangible. Eugene Levy brings along, as I mentioned, the the one girl on the trip. Shakina is her character's name, played by Lisa Barbusia, fine looking young woman, and she is owned by Eugene Levy in this film, and he makes a point. Literally, of, yes, 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 yes. Not. I'm not saying that's the bonds of marriage. He he has a contract for her. Uh, I tell you what, man. The 1800s are canceled after watching this movie. <laughs> but he makes it very clear no one should look at, look at her. And Bidwell, one of the crewmen, does. Sees her you know, changing, sees her naked. And so Eugene Levy, guy at Fontenot, uh, bites his ear off. And he comes out and he's like, that crazy Frenchman bit my ear off. And this is like the most concentrated moment of Chandler in the entire movie <laughs> where he goes, well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. And then Eugene Levy spits out the ear and then he turns and he goes, my apologies, Bidwell. <laughs> and then he's yelling about what happened. And, you know, he's like this guy, he saw my wife's breast and this is just pure Chandler. He's like, he saw her breast. You saw her breast. And then like turns it's, the head, like the way his neck moves and the head movement and his eyes in this, it's yep. just all pure Chandler right here. But it's good. I mean, that that's, it works. That's yeah, it works. And I mean, I guess it's one of those things where like you wouldn't know if it worked until you tried it. So uh, they took chances here, and obviously it ended up not paying off. But I guess to you and to me, it works because it's a uh, 
there's just inherent comedy in transposing a character from modern times, like Chandler Bing, somebody who's just so utterly 90s with his mannerisms and the way that he speaks, his, his speech pattern, and transporting him to the 1800s and not acknowledging the, the disparity, right? Like, it's just, he's Chandler, it's the 1800s, and he's dressed as a, I don't know, like a lord <laughs> from, from those times. Uh that's got to be brave for Christopher Guest to just pitch that to the studio. I was like, and then we get the guy from Friends and we just throw him as the, as the leader of the expedition. Good day. I bring you wishes for peace from Thomas Jefferson, the great chief of the whites. Ow. Uh, that reminds me, Eugene Levy is supposed to be French, right? Yes. In this movie? Because his, his accent work is interesting. Uh, much like, I guess, Matthew Perry's because he's, you know, he he is putting in a little bit of an accent. I'll, I'll give him that. Whereas like Farley is just Chris Farley. He doesn't do accents. He's just loud. And then later when we meet Kevin Dunn, I mean, he is putting on a bit of a Spaniard accent. So they were, it, it's not like everybody was set up here as, uh, you know, they didn't just tell him, act like yourselves. Like there were different degrees of trying to be period accurate. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would love to hear from uh, Matthew Perry just to hear the direction that he got from this one. Like, you know, did he show up ready to go in character, like do, go method with the 1800s? And then Christopher Guest told him, no, 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 no. What we want is what you do on the show. Because that would have been a you know, fascinating turn of events. <laughs> By permitting Mr. Hunt to name some of our discoveries, I have unleashed his imagination. He now insists that I teach him to read. His enthusiasm reminds me of the schoolboy I once was. What this leads into, I I think, is like the most uh, playing off of each other Farley and Perry do in the film of the, they're kind of bonding. And as part of it, you know, Perry's narrating through this. We're, we're hearing he's audibly, you know, telling us his diary and where we're going and stuff like that. And one of the things is he, be- he becomes closer to Hunt is that he's going to teach him how to read. And so we get like this tutoring lesson between the two of them. Julio, I had forgotten about this scene, and this is something that I was thinking to myself, Julio might genuinely find this funny. It's literally just Matthew Perry trying to teach Farley the concept of the letter A, and they're both, again, he's Chandler, and he's, you know, Chris Farley from Saturday Night Live uh, in every skit that he did, because this is the letter A, and then, you know, Farley does some, like, physical comedy reaction to it, and it's fucking hilarious because he just sees the letter A and he looks at it and he looks up at Matthew Perry and goes, whoa. And <laughs> then Perry, you know, flips the the blackboard around and draws a lowercase A and he shows it to him and it just, it like breaks his brain. He can't process it. It's, again, very silly in idea, but in execution, just peak comedy here. Because you have the right actors doing it. Like if you had somebody else that is not as... I mean, that's chemistry. That's that's really all you can put it down to. You know, it's like uh, even if you had a different member of the Friends cast, that wouldn't have worked as well. Like, you know, maybe David Schwimmer wouldn't have pulled it off. This is the letter A. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe A isn't good. Um, Alex, is this this whole reading sequence, is this before or after... No, they're bonding, right? So this is before we get to see the rare sighting of uh, Eugene Levy's ass. Yeah, Perry's got his, uh, or excuse me, Edwards has his telescope out and he's peeping in on uh, Shakina, who's nude bathing under a waterfall. God bless. Farley comes up and he's like, hey, what are you looking at? And he looks through it and it's 
Eugene Levy nude bathing under a waterfall. And so we get proper man ass here in a PG-13 film. <laughs> Levy ass. You know, that's not what Eugene Levy is known for. Well, I think this speaks to like where he was at his career in terms of just like, I need to do what I can. And <laughs> if it's ass, you know, then I'll I'll get down there and I'll whip it out. But I want them to call me for the sequel. I want to believe after Almost Heroes, he's like, all right, I'm taking the next booking I get. And if that doesn't work out, this is over. And then <laughs> they're like, we want you to play Jason Biggs's dad. He's like, I can do that. Sure. Actually, he just signed on because he heard Jennifer Coolidge was going to be on set. um it's pretty interesting that the the you know you were talking about the 1800s being canceled and uh yes (laughs) i mean they should and i guess they did in a way uh but the the way that they approach the movie approaches the uh, i would say low-key romance developing romance between uh, matthew perry and uh Eugene Levy's wife slash property is very, uh, I mean, it's funny to begin with just because, you know, they're letting him be full Chandler where he just kind of like doubles back on his on his sentences and all that. But also it really makes him stand out among the crew because of the way that he acts toward a woman that he clearly finds attractive and, and who at some point we realize that she also finds him attractive. But he mm-hmm. he talks himself out of doing anything physical with her because not because of Eugene Levy, but more out of this sort of a sense of uh, propriety he's like oh but that wouldn't be the gentlemanly thing to do and uh he's surrounded by <laughs> you know people that wouldn't think twice about taking advantage of her so it's uh i thought that that gave his character a, a nice little wrinkle because you know that most of the time the contrast is coming from him being foppish like you know that description said like him being kind of a stuck up douchebag but but then here you actually see that oh well there is he has this sort of code <laughs> And he's not going to engage with this woman that likes him. But at this point, it's not like the right place or the right time. So I thought that that was interesting. That was They gave Matthew Perry something to play with. Absolutely. Mr. Hunt, behold the object of my desire. Behold an angel sent down from on high. We get a traveling montage. We get a bear attack. As you know, in any really good physical comedy you have to have the character that gets beat up more so than everyone and shockingly that's not chris farley in this one it's the the character of bidwell who is played by david packer not todd but david his son his illegitimate (laughs) son david and uh, a bear shows up and he attacks (laughs) bidwell with the incredible moment of farley's telling everyone to stay still or else the bear will attack him and bidwell starts talking about this itch he has on his nose and he's like i have to scratch it i don't know what's worse the itch on my nose or getting attacked by the bear. So he scratches his nose and the bear comes and grabs him and he says, the bear is definitely worse. <laughs> um, no CGI here. So God bless. Is that a real bear that's dragging Mr. Packer? It looks like it. it's certainly a real bear that wanders onto set. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think it would be him. Packer it would definitely be a stunt double that was doing it. Somebody got dragged. Yeah. You know, until semi-pro, I'm pretty sure they always brought in the wrestling bears to do what they could for these. Back when filmmaking was a brave endeavor. Back when it meant something. Yeah. Uh, they visit the local town, Snake's Bend. This is where we're introduced to Kevin Dunn. I just have Kevin Dunn sighting in my notes here. Uh, this is like our antagonist, Hidalgo. 
I, I guess you could say Lewis and Clark, just the idea of Lewis and Clark's journey is the antagonist, but Hidalgo's like the bad guy that shows up. Yeah. He's just like this Spanish conqueror, and it's Kevin Dunn with long flowing hair and a twirled mustache, and he's just an asshole and comes into town and decides he's going to steal Shakina after Eugene Levy, a uh, guy, pledges his allegiance to him. So Perry tries to protect her. Meanwhile, Farley uh, Hunt, excuse me, is at the local shop getting, you know, stocking up on supplies. The guy is also the local barber. Uh, he takes a bath there. He's a local dentist. And so we get a bunch of things of Farley getting his tooth pulled, uh, how dirty he is and how much he smells, that type of shit. I had forgotten the look he has when he gets like shaved and his hair cut and he's got like pulled back with the Irish sideburns, you know, and it's Uh like, man, that could have been a really good look for him. That was the action figure. Yes. Yes. With the, I'm trying it would come with the eagle and like the three eggs. That's uh, the series two, like series one of almost heroes. is just like, you know, him looking scruffy after almost being executed. Yeah. 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 But series two, yeah, you get the ponytail and the eagle. And if you get the series three, I mean, it's just like. Him naked. It's just him taking the bath. Jesus. Um, so this is this is another uh, moment where I wrote: Is this Alex's favorite joke? It's when the 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 guy that's like the multi-purpose guy who's like you know he runs the shop and he's also a barber and he practices taxidermy and he does dentistry on the side. And so when Chris Farley asks for like an explanation, the guy's like, "Oh well, you know, I do dentist work on the animals that I." practice taxidermy on and then the camera pans and you see i guess it's like a deer's head it's some sort of animal head on his wall and it has perfect teeth <laughs> and then and then as if that wasn't enough the camera goes to another wall and there's another animal and it also has like big teeth just like giant teeth. dentures yeah yeah and i was like oh this is a different kind of humor it doesn't mean that you know it might be just what alex was looking for <laughs> So that's my second guess. All right, we got two on the table now. Yeah, we got two on the table. Now, th- you mentioned earlier that uh, they don't really get to interact, Matthew Perry and Chris Farley. And I think that that's true. Like, I would say, like, at least 50% of the movie, they're separated. Like, here, right? Uh, Farley is on his own subplot with this guy, with the dentist slash taxidermist, while Matthew Perry and the rest of the crew is facing off against uh, Kevin Dunn. And uh, I think that's actually a pretty bold move and it shows just the confidence of christopher guest and, and his team and just like the star power of his two protagonists he knows he doesn't need them to be together i mean he, they can carry their own subplot on their own it's not like farley needs perry or perry needs farley in order to be funny yeah for someone like me it's always best when they're together but i think if anything it just makes it more special when they have scenes together where they interact because they spend so much of the movie apart yeah, I agree with that. It it also makes the crew in general, like when they're all banded together as one, uh, pop more specifically because of the sequence of the film. Farley's doing his own thing. Perry's doing his own thing. Farley comes in to kind of save the day. He helps to save Shakina, and which he drinks uh, Hidalgo under the table. He flexes his powerful muscles of drinking because that's all. That's kind of like the that's the secret cap. I'm always mad. Because uh, <laughs> he tell you know he's refrained and been restricted from drinking the entire movie, but they need it to come out of him in that moment. So I guess he's always drunk would be the equivalent of that. That's how you would finish <laughs> that whole joke. But the rest of the crew is away from this, so they don't see any of this. They're at the local whorehouse that 
they go to very excitedly and we quickly find out it's all just straw women there but you know it's the mirage on the desert thing you can see a beautiful swimming pool or a water fountain if you want to so they've been away from women for too long uh, they embrace themselves and endear themselves to these women and eventually catch the building on fire as as you do this is a uh, maybe the most bizarre surreal sequence in the movie and i was there for it i i thought it was great i mean the, the movie is toyed with that idea right that the the guy is it bidwell that loses his ear yeah yeah, that's him, right? And uh, so the idea that uh, it's not just that he lost his ear, but also that one of his one of his friends, one of his co-workers, another member of the crew, keeps the ear and spends the rest of the movie thinking that when he talks into the ear, Bidwell can hear him. That is pure lunacy, and it works because the movie commits to that bit, you know, and and uh, the same way that the movie commits to the bit of this whorehouse that is is made up of straw women mm-hmm. <laughs> it just they they take it seriously like the only person that raises an eyebrow to either of these things like the ear or the the straw women is matthew perry which makes sense because he's the outsider right but it's just so much funnier because the movie plays it straight yeah and they embrace it to the point that uh one of the gentlemen pratt brings what remains of his wife aboard deck with him and they as they continue on, on their journey even going as far as to ask if he can go check on a, his wife below or his girlfriend. I can't remember how he words it. We kind of jump forward here as Matthew Perry projects that they're, they're more ahead of schedule than they think. Uh, I think we go from July to October and we see they're making their way through the mountains and it's basically winter where they are. And Matthew Perry's uh, come down with a, an intense fever. And, you know, back in those days, that can mean you're going to die. The, the, priest that's with them is reading him his last rites this is uh i mean obviously because of the type of movie it is we know that he's not gonna die but the other characters don't know that and i think it's telling that chris farley agrees to go on a suicide mission for him the movie very carefully very subtly even like has been building up the relationship between between these two men to where i bought that that chris farley actually cares a little bit for him when he's sick which later on, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later in the movie, when they actually get into a big fight, a big argument, it, it hurt because I was like, oh, these guys are friends. What's going on? So this is probably the, the, the big moment that reveals, you know, Chris Farley. That shows another shade of Chris Farley uh, when he he decides to sacrifice, potentially sacrifice himself for the sake of uh, Matthew Perry. Did this make you want dramatic dying Matthew Perry? Just like seeing, you know, the, the comedic chops he has here where he's potentially on his deathbed. Do you, do you watch this and you want the the Oscar winner where Matthew Perry struggles with his life and his mortality? Uh, I mean, not then, and I don't even think that now, but maybe twenty years from now. We need Matthew Perry out the game long enough that you know it's a <laughs> yeah. welcome return. He comes back in just a hard hitting drama. Matthew Perry's the wrestler. He just plays a a sitcom actor that's burnt out. Oh, jeez. He has one last chance to to make a splash while he's battling with like you know prostate cancer or something. <laughs> yes. God, can you imagine how many Oscars that movie would win? Directed by Tom Hooper. I mean, he could do it. Like we've seen, <laughs> is he needs to ring himself back in and get out of this. I'm a big time filmmaker mode. He's in. All right, I don't need 20 years. Give me about five. 20 coming Christmas of 2027. <laughs> It would be called applause, and the poster would be the light-up sign on the sitcom set. 
<laughs> All right. So Shakina tells Hunt he's dying. I can f- cure him. I just need the egg of an eagle. So off goes Hunt on this journey to get an eagle egg. And this sets up the sequence of events where, you know, he goes up and he gets the first one and the, the eagle attacks him and he gets into it with, with her. She's protecting her kin, you know. Uh, Farley makes it down to the ground and ends up cooking the egg and eating it. Then he goes back up and gets another egg, gets into a scuffle with the the eagle, comes back down, resists himself from eating it, and then finds a a pig or a boar and shoots that, and then it cuts to him cooking bacon. Then he looks at the egg, and he fries the egg up with the bacon. Uh, This is so good because he's eating it, and he's crying while he's doing it. It's just, you know, I I don't know if that would be considered insensitive now or something, but uh, very funny because I have to eat this, but I feel bad about it. Goes back up the third time, gets the final leg, but of course gets into a massive scuffle with the the eagle. Makes it back to the campground, protects the egg at all costs. As soon as he gets there, Shakina cracks it open, drains the entire egg, and explains all I needed was the shell. My note says, eagle egg joke equal Alex's favorite joke. (laughs) Bad green screen here and Farley, you know, every time he reacts to the eagle and I, it is so good how he's just like punching it over and over again, just rearing back and you know right hands, straight rights. Well, it's it's one of those things where like you think that you already know what the punchline was, and then it surprises you. It's like a Shyamalan punchline at the end, because by the time that you know he brings the egg back and she breaks it and it reveals that she only needed the the shell, I thought the joke was over. So that it was just it snuck up on me. You know, I thought the joke was him eating the eggs. So, yeah, no, very very well constructed. They've caught up to Lewis and Clark. They find them. Uh, they're alongside the body of water. They're traveling down. They're walking. And Farley explains it's because they believe the, tr- the river ahead is too rough. And Edwards insists, no, we'll carry on. We'll be fine. And, of course, they trudge forward, and it leads them down a waterfall and all these. They barely survive. And this is where we get the conflict, where the, the two split up. Uh, part of the crew goes with. Or it's all the crew goes with Hunt, right? And no, uh, Bidwell stays with uh with Matthew Perry. There you go. But the majority goes with Farley, and the you know the reinforcements for Edwards are are minor. Who are you with here? Like, if you were part of the crew, who would you go with? I, I feel like Hunt's gotten him where they are, and he's right that Edwards is getting too reckless with it. And also, you know. It's the whole thing of he hasn't done any of the work, so he needs to quit calling all the shots type thing. So, yeah, I, I would have been with Hunt. See, that's weird. I, I would have gone with Perry. Uh, and I, it might be obviously, well, okay, I, so I like Matthew Perry more than I like Chris Farley. But also, I think that the other way that I connected with this movie was just the, that uh, sort of like corny American spirit of like, oh, we shall overcome and we will just push tours you know until we achieve our goals and that's that's the matthew perry character you know the the can-do attitude of just i'm an american and i said that i was gonna get there to the ocean and i'm going to get there to the ocean and we just have to keep trying and never give up and all that and so when everybody turns on him and all he's he just keeps saying guys just a little bit longer (laughs) if we just push a little bit harder a little bit further we're gonna make it like i was on his side i you know, he was upper management. <laughs> you can't expect him to do all the hard work, but he, he has the vision. So hashtag Team Perry. Fair enough. They all kind of come back to the middle, though, as Hidalgo captures the crew and has them all basically hostage at this point. They run the gauntlet, which consists of them getting like paddled and beaten and then having to run on hot coals. And then they end up running on creamed corn. Uh, and this is 
you know, Eugene Levy is trying to blend into this group that he's joined of bad guys, but he's so terrible at it. Like he doesn't know what the gauntlet is and that he and I guess his idea for it was the corn. So they're all just really suspicious of him. And, you know, his whole thing has been just trying to blend in and uh, he's doing a terrible job at it. Kind of an underrated performance from Eugene Levy here. Yep. Um Every time I see somebody walk on hot coal, I think of Pam in that episode of The Office. Absolutely. Sadly, well, no, actually, no. I was going to say there's no emotional revelations after they walk on hot coal here, but that's not true. This is where, where really the the bromance between Chris Farley and Matthew Perry reaches the next level, right? Because they're they're running from the from the forces of Hidalgo, and Chris Farley pulls one of those of like, just keep going. I'll I'll, I'll hold him off. And yeah. then Matthew Perry doubles back and instead tries to save Chris Farley. He fails, but at least, you know, he makes the attempt, which is all that matters. And uh, th- these, I mean, these characters, we started the movie, these characters that could barely stand each other, like they both thought very poorly of the other. And, and here they are now, once again, risking their lives uh, for each other. That's that's pretty cool, like that the movie can build that kind of relationship believably in the middle of all these uh, really silly jokes and really over-the-top performances. I mean, that's that's Christopher Guest as a director. The bromance rages on here. Hunt and Edwards find uh, some Native Americans and ask them for their help because their crew needs saved. And they're all advanced in age natives, but they assure that when the time comes, they'll be able to kick ass, which sure as shit actually happens because we get this big, huge fight scene between Hidalgo and his men and then the edwards and hunt crew and yeah like i said these old natives whoop ass and i know you have to watch this movie and remembering the context of the old people doing wild stuff hadn't been played out yet you know we we still were in the era of like the rapping granny and whatnot so i was about to say i'll just give the movie props for not casting betty white in any of these roles or who was the old woman who was the rapping granny and wedding singer because she was like the the go-to old woman at the time. Ellen <laughs> Albertini Dowell uh, was her name. And she was like, she was in Wedding Crashers. And I can't remember the others, but I remember she was like the one of the moment. I said hip hop. I hip it to the hip to the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boot. If they up jump the boot to the rhythm of the boot the beat. So big fight scene. Even Blue gets in a shot. Eugene Levy at this point tries to get back in with the good graces of Hunt. And he tells him, you know, get out of here or I'm going to shoot you type thing. So he takes off running and exit Eugene Levy. Thank you for your time you spent with us in this. Pick up your check at the <laughs> at the door. Head to the pay window, baby. Julio, when we decided to do this movie, I bet you didn't think that it was going to culminate with a sword fight between Kevin Dunn and Matthew Perry. I did not. Not even when this movie was halfway through because I always thought that it was going to be Hunt. Chris Farley, who was going to get the, all the action scenes. And Matthew Perry was just going to use his brain. I mean, he even says it at some point. He's like, oh, maybe we can defeat them if you know I outsmart them. But no, there's an actual, honest-to-God, sword fight between <laughs> between Kevin Dunn, who's doing his best Inigo Montoya impression, and Matthew Perry, who becomes an action hero for the last 10 minutes of the movie, which is great. It's quippy. So it's like Duel of the Fates, but if they were if there was banter all throughout the fight really really exciting stuff and then of course it culminates with a hilarious reveal uh, which is that that was not kevin dunn's hair 
and he wears a girdle. He's got a big old belly. So we get bald Kevin Dunn. Like he's bald. It's not like he has like a crew cut that he wears a wig on top of. It's it's all there and it's all gone. And we get another Chandlerism where he goes, "Good God, man." <laughs> Could you be any bolder? It's a race to the finish at this point. After Hidalgo has been dispatched, they head uh, to the Pacific and they reach it. And it's a beautiful sight. Unfortunately, they're at the top of like a, a mountain point and they see below that Lewis and Clark are making their way there. So we don't know how they're going to win, but we're at the end of the movie. So, you know, what's going to happen? Naturally, they both argue of who's going to be the one to descend. It's just basically a straight drop down. And Matthew Perry volunteers. He says, you know, I'm the captain. I'll do it. Uh, Hunt steps up and he says, no, I'm going to do it. Perry says, I insist or something to the effect. And so Farley says, well, this is for your own good and punches him in the face. And how is that for my own good? Oh, sorry. This was supposed to knock you out. And then Perry this is like, okay, Hunt's going to go. Okay. So this is where the movie goes old Tarantino and, rewrites history which i was not expecting were you expecting this alex or did it also i mean of course now you knew but the first time you watched it was your mind blown to bits by the fact that matthew perry and his crew actually beat lewis and clark yes this was a time of happy endings man this was before you know things had to be sad and soul crushing even the muppets can't do it anymore they can't win (laughs) yeah but that is like just they change history, and it's, you know, I I didn't expect it in Glorious Bastards. I certainly didn't expect it in Almost Heroes that we would just say, fuck it, it's a movie. I can do whatever I want. So Christopher Guest says that, you know, in this world, in this in this iteration of the multiverse, uh, Lewis and Clark got there second. And it was just such a joyous conclusion to the movie just to see these guys win because i was not expecting them to win that's like the that's the ultimate trick right like when you've watched so many movies that you feel like you can anticipate in broad strokes the ending uh, and yet a movie manages to surprise you like this that's that's something to be treasured and not just because they get a happy ending but because i i was happy that they did not sacrifice what i liked the most about matthew perry's character in order to give him a satisfying ending because there is a version of this movie that ends with him arriving second but basically learning that it didn't matter because what mattered was the friends that he made along the way mm-hmm. but this movie doesn't do that this movie celebrates and encourages the fact that he is an overachiever and that he just wants to keep going. <laughs> that is that is good. That is, you know, what I was telling you, that, that that's what drew me to the character, that he was just, uh, that he symbolized this this aspect of America. You know, it's just like, we're just going to keep going and we're going to win and then we're going to win again and we're going to keep winning. And so not only does he beat Lewis and Clark, but now he wants to keep going uh, in further expeditions. It is kind of like the end of The Wrestler, too, because he's just like, I don't want to go back to normal life. None of us do. (laughs) Yeah. This is life. Everything else is is fiction. Honestly, the only thing that would have made it better if they somehow had managed to to bring Eugene Levy back into the fold instead of just running him out of town. But I I guess you can't have everything. (laughs) Got to pick your spots. But like you said, this thing sets up uh, a whole franchise in the end. Just sadly was not to be. America was was not ready for more period pieces starring Matthew Perry. I think that is very true. 
<laughs> anyway, that was almost Heroes, a fascinating piece of business. Kind of sad. There's no way to watch anything Farley did anymore without some sense of melancholy. And especially considering this came out after he died. And yeah, it's sad stuff. Um, but for what it is, it's quite the hoot. And I look forward to getting your real thoughts on it, Julio. Let's go to real talk. Let us get better acquainted. Sir, Higgins has a story. Oh, oh yes. You're going to love this one. Well, all right, Higgins. The floor is yours. <clears throat> this particular event happened last summer on my uncle's farm in Virginia. My brother and I had just finished cutting a field of hay and were enjoying the evening meal under the shade of an elm tree. He went down for water by the creek, and while he was gone, I took a bowl that was filled with delicious plum pudding and placed into it not one, but two large pieces of sheep shit. 